Welcome to Toil, the week in health law. The iPhones really are cheaper than healthcare podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on March 10th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my co-host, who has literally just rushed back from Asia to be with us. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, Frank Pasquale, a law professor at uh, University of Maryland School of Law and very, very grateful to National Taiwan University and Academia Seneca for a terrific invitation to Taipei. And I understand that Twill episodes have been heard there? Yes, a shout out to our listener Cindy Chang for her uh, fantastic endorsement of the show while I was there. Cindy, welcome. Yes. So just a quick reminder, uh, whether you are in Taiwan or Toledo, that it only takes a moment to go to iTunes and rate our show. Please do help us out with your reviews and comments because that really helps to spread the word about the show. This week on 12 Frank, a great uh, welcome to our good friend Andrea Matwishin, professor at Northeastern University School of Law in Boston. She studies technology innovation, its legal implications, particularly corporate information security regulation and consumer privacy. Uh, her book, Harboring Data, Information Security Law and the Corporation, looks at common mistakes companies make, which breaches go unreported despite notification statutes and surprising weaknesses in the federal laws that regulate financial data privacy, children's data collection, and health data privacy. Prior to joining Northeast Eastern. Andrea was in residence at the Center for Information Technology Policy at Princeton and served as a faculty affiliate at on the of the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School. Uh, great to have you on the pod, Andrea. Thrilled to be with you. Well, where to start? Where to start? How about the Internet of Health Things? Um, I recently uh, put out a little piece on this, uh, but it uh, it came back to haunt me this week after learning of the uh, the WikiLeaks dump uh, of uh, uh, various alleged um, surveillance tactics that uh, uh, operate through our devices and other things that we uh, uh, connect to the internet. Uh, for me, this has led to a, a new uh, habit, which uh, every time I pass by my Samsung TV, I wave cheerily at it, um, <laughs> hoping hoping to make someone else's life better. But I think there are a couple of, of things to look at here. How do we look at security and privacy uh, with regard to these health-related uh, devices and software from a consumer perspective? And how do regulators look at it? I think you're absolutely right and that your TV probably really appreciates the cheery greeting every day. So these issues with respect to the Internet of Things and the devices that have internet connections presenting challenges in maintaining the confidentiality of information in the spaces in which they're embedded, this is not an entirely new problem. Uh, as anyone who follows the privacy conversation uh, will tell you, and as you well know, um, the question of this kind of uh, non-obvious data collection and the extent to which it's even disclosed to consumers who are purchasing these devices is something that's been on the radar of consumer groups for a long time. And the Federal Trade Commission has engaged in uh, enforcement activity around the question of smart TVs in particular. Um, and so when we think about the way that Internet of Things devices are permeating our lives, whether it's the smart toaster that lets you imprint the weather on your toast in the morning, or 
or it is the smart coffee machine in your employer's break room that uh, periodically won't give you coffee because it's in the middle of a software update that it's sucking down from the internet. There are these unintended secondary consequences of Internet of Things devices uh, that include data leakage and collection in unexpected ways, functionality limitations, and increasingly, they also involve the risk of security compromise and the potential for the devices to impair the treatment of patients in healthcare facilities or to even harm the patient that is attached to the device. I think that's a really good introduction to some of the cybersecurity issues raised by the Internet of Things. And I just wanted to take a step back before we went further into the substance to talk about the governance um, and to get your thoughts about the current governance framework, Andrea, because I know that recently the FDA went to HIMSS in Orlando and uh, talked a bit about their post-market cybersecurity guidance um, that we'll link to on the show notes. And um, as they did so, one of the things they said is that, you know, we're not the only agency thinking about cybersecurity for uh, medical devices or medically connected devices. There's also DHS and HHS. Um, I suppose some state laws are also going to be in this mix. And I was just wondering, do you have a sense that this is a situation where a thousand flowers are blooming and blooming nicely? Or are we in a situation where it's just sort of chaotic and there's no real centralized coordination that would be optimal and necessary uh, to deal with the challenges on the horizon? So as a practical matter, I think we're in a transitional phase and we have some uncertainty in light of the change of uh, administration administration uh, that's happened within the last few months. But with respect to past divisions of regulatory oversight, uh, when it came to health marketing claims, for example, the Federal Trade Commission has generally been involved in the mix on that score, uh, while the FDA has dealt with the underlying questions of the technologies themselves. Um, This kind of division and sharing of oversight of the space of health technologies and the information attached thereto, that's uh, the functional reality of the way things have worked in the past and the way that I think things will continue to work. But I agree entirely uh, with your assessment that uh, what we are likely to see moving forward, and I think what we want to see moving forward, is a shared cooperative arrangement across relevant agencies that have some piece of pie in terms of consumer protection or innovation stimulation or competition uh, furtherance. So the story of the FDA security guidance is an interesting one because there were two sets of guidance. The first, the pre-market guidance, and the second, the post-market guidance. So the pre-market guidance, after it was released, met with critique, particularly in the security research community, as perhaps reflecting a little bit too much emphasis on legalistic framings and not enough emphasis on engaging with the technical reality of computer security. Uh, the second set of guidance, the post-market guidance, um, has a different character to it. And part of the magic that happened behind the scenes in this instance with the second guidance, which is more robust, more detailed, um, and uh, receiving positive feedback from the security research community in particular, was a behind-the-scenes process that included technical experts in the mix. There were security researchers who were collaborating with the FDA to try to strike
like a balance and a framework in that guidance, create a framework that uh, allowed for meaningful evolution and positive directions of the security practices of uh, relevant healthcare entities who are building devices and, and providing implicated services. Um, so although there's still a, a long way to go in terms of the security of medical devices and the security of healthcare information generally, that FDA post-market guidance does signal a bit of a changing tide in terms of the um, constructive collaboration between the private sector security research community and the FDA in crafting guidance for the benefit of the private sector. Can you give us an example other than just uh, the idea of better cooperation between industry and, and FDA? Is there a different approach that is substantive in the the newer of those two guidances? Yes. So the FDA post-market guidance provides specifics with respect to the types of security testing that would be ideally present and the types of technical information that would be useful to a uh, device manufacturer when assessing their obligations in terms of maintaining the integrity uh, of the code in their their products in particular. Um, And it's a signal of the appropriateness and willingness uh, of the FDA to view pulling devices off the market due to security failures as something that uh, certainly is within the realm of reasonable conduct and um, the potential risks associated with security compromise of uh, devices are serious ones that the FDA views as um, an important consideration uh, in its enforcement and uh, future policymaking. So you and I, Andrea, have discussed before the role of uh, white hat security researchers in uh, this space um, and uh, the uh, the horrible uh, mess that was the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Um, has That's changed a little bit now, hasn't it, as far as allowing uh, uh, more sort of uh, public safety-related uh, research? It has, and this was one of the material shifts that's happened more generally on the point of uh, security research and improving consumer protection. In 2015, the Copyright Office recommended and the Library of Congress uh, validated, uh, approved the broadest exemption for security research in the history of the DMCA, which basically covers consumer products, security research, and medical devices are one of those categories of consumer products. There are some uh, constraints around the the way that the research takes place. Obviously, this is not uh, an attempt to encourage Frankenstein-like scenarios where researchers uh, test devices on unwilling suspects, uh, or sorry, uh, (laughs) unwilling patients and and, uh, we uh, end up in a situation where patients are harmed by by research on attached devices to their bodies. This is a different approach that the Copyright Office advocates. Instead, it's one that's grounded in basic principles of care in in research. So a security researcher that is conducting research on medical devices is expected to obviously own the device, 
to exercise care in research setting in order to minimize risk to any potential past or a future patient, though the device should not be used on any on any actual humans. But the bottom line is that for the first time, security researchers can perform tests on the quality of the computer code in medical devices without fear of copyright suits from the medical device manufacturers. And indeed, the medical device manufacturers commented and opposed the granting of this exemption in the Copyright Office. But, uh, and full disclosure, I was one of the attorneys that represented a group of uh, academics who were seeking this exemption. Uh, But the Copyright Office found the arguments of the security researchers to be more compelling in light of the importance of the consumer protection interest. And so we're seeing shift in the importance of consumer protection uh, filtering into even copyright decision making. And it's natural to see that that kind of evolution acknowledging the give and take in uh, terms of medical devices in particular and the various competing interests that are in play. Um, that's demonstrated by the level of detail, for example, in the FDA post-market guidance, where there's everything from discussions of how to assess exploitability of particular vulnerabilities, how to assess the severity of patient harm, uh, and how to evaluate the risk to patients uh, in light of various threat models and uh, the nature of the vulnerabilities. Uh, And it's intended to nudge companies, uh, manufacturing companies, to determine the appropriateness of, of recalls in particular. So that's all very well with regard to highly regulated spaces like uh, medical devices. But what about the uh, the pre-patient or the the consumer-facing devices? I'm I'm a lot uh, more skeptical there, uh, particularly uh, as I uh, worry about the future of the FTC um, uh, post-election. Uh, but also over uh, the last few years, um, I've taken the position that we probably get more privacy and security protection from the uh, Apple. Uh, Um, app store rules than we do from any of our regulators. And I see, for example, that Consumer Reports are going to start scoring uh, consumer devices uh, that have connectivity um, with regard to their cybersecurity and privacy safeguards. Uh, Is that going to be the future of the consumer side of this? It's certainly one component of the future of the consumer side. And that Consumer Reports uh, new initiative was partially enabled, again, by that DMCA exam that the Copyright Office, in its wisdom, granted uh, in the 2015 uh, triennial rulemaking. So the Copyright Office has led the way here in nudging more pro-consumer position, uh, which is great. So I agree with you that the role of private ordering and contracts, in particular in these kinds of health-connected, health-related device conversations, becomes increasingly important, particularly when these devices Devices, things like the Fitbits and the 23andMe's and these services that process health-related information, either with or without the assistance of a physical device, they, in most cases, will argue that they are not covered by the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, and that uh, they don't require any higher levels of FDA approval, or they will assert that they are simply a consumer product uh, at most regulated or enforced against by the FD, by the FTC, by the Federal Trade Commission. Um, and so we have, in that case, contracts between these companies and consumers, the end 
end user license agreements that we all click yes on uh, and which only the nerdiest of us read, those are by default the arguably adhesive, but nevertheless, governing terms of the relationship between those companies and uh, each of us in our use of those products. Particularly when there are challenges in contract interpretation and some of the traditional consumer protective defaults of offline contracting have not really transferred to digital spaces in the way that some of us would like to see. We're having a arguably a slippage in contract law, not necessarily recognizing its own downward spiral of consumer protection. One of the dynamics that uh, I'm seeing and that, that concern me is that the defaults of digital contracting are kind of slipping into physical space contexts to provide less consumer protection than uh, contract law has generally provided in the past. What do I mean? For example, uh, you used to rent a car, you'd get a piece of paper, you would uh, have the ability to review the terms on a piece of paper, perhaps cross out some terms or modify those terms in a negotiation with a person behind the counter, at least in theory, though I did do this in practice and have unintentionally perhaps traumatized a rental car employer or two with this. But nevertheless, uh, in theory, that's the premise of a uh, negotiated transaction. But now you go to rent a car and there's a little box that looks like a credit card terminal where you scroll through the agreement and there really isn't the ability to strike provisions. There really isn't the ability to negotiate in the same way. And you simply click yes. Um, and the types of provisions that exist within that document on that little terminal, uh, which may not even be angled properly at you if you are short, as I am, you sometimes don't even have a good look at it because it's, it's intended for tall people. Um, so the provisions that are included there now usually include things like the right to record you in the car, the right to follow you around, the right to turn on a camera um, to check on your behavior in the car. There are, there are various different types of provisions um, that have become progressively more draconian and progressively less consumer friendly across time. Um, and part of that is the evolution of technology. Part of that is the evolution of big data aggregation. And part of it is the evolution of the contracting mechanism itself and the uh, diminished likelihood that someone is going to recognize this strange privacy invasive provision and push back against it. Um, so the formation mechanism and the user experience of forming the agreement has changed. And those same dynamics are happening with our uh, medical related devices. Uh, you install an app that has the end user license agreement to be able to use the product. You need to install the app. To use the app, you have to click yes on whatever those terms are. And they don't uh, usually provide even a phone number for negotiation of those terms. So uh, that means that contracts, as you pointed out in, in the question, uh, have been, and for a while now uh, have been, and will continue to be the default 
governing mechanism in the way that consumers relate to companies. And despite this, it's often the case that companies violate their own privacy policies in the way that they collect and use data. So again, the value of third-party audit and monitoring from the private sector and from government agencies uh, is a key component of creating a healthy feedback loop for the functionality of this marketplace to both protect consumers, but also from a company standpoint, we want the market to reward the companies that invest in high quality code in code that demonstrates strong confidentiality, availability and integrity principles. And those are the three hallmarks of the uh, HIPAA security rule as well. Um, so in order for the market to reward the companies that invest in the high quality research and development and the high quality security engineering talent in good code auditing processes in bringing in those third party consultants to penetration test products to engage in evaluation of the quality of the code. In order for the market to reward those companies, we need to have third parties evaluating the quality of these devices and the code in those devices to be able to catch the companies that are lying about. Because the companies that are marketing saying that their products are, air quotes, secure or preserve privacy or use encryption when they don't, they are, in essence, devaluing the responsible companies that are engaging in significant investments in improving the security of their products. And we want the market to reward the companies that are being careful in building out the technology components of their products and care about not harming the consumers and patients that interact with their products. I think that last point in particular is something that industry is beginning to realize. Um, I just uh, came back from a conference actually in Tokyo before the Taipei trip, and um, I was talking with someone who works with IBM Watson on some of their healthcare applications, and they were clearly very concerned about exactly the dynamic you described, Andrea, that the there's a Gresham's Law of securities promises, and if, you know, the, just with Gresham's Law, the bad money drives out good, bad and unreliable security uh, pr pr promises are going to drive out the, or totally devalue the ones that are actually backed up by some sort of, by a real process. And the other point that I just wanted to connect, uh, because I'm assigning this work by Nick in my class next week, is this regulatory arbitrage point. Nick's been writing in this area, been doing a lot of really good work on it, as a big concern about the real enforceability of privacy laws. And we might see more and more entities trying to, you know, get out from under HIPAA and just be consumer-facing and then be under the very weak uh, FTC rules. And that's a concern as well. I, I should I should just interrupt here, Frank, and, and apologize in advance to your students. <laughs> well, no, no, I, I think they will have a, a wonderfully enlightening time with that piece. And but you know, moving forward a bit with the, like our concern about the regulatory agenda of the future, uh, either say on a state level or say among data protection authorities in Europe, since I, I don't think this is going to be a huge uh, concern of the Trump administration. Uh, I'm wondering if when we think about threat 
threat models. There are certain threats out there in the cybersecurity landscape that are so clear and present and documented that it would really be foolish and bad practice for a hospital not to address them, such as ransomware. You know, the threat of ransomware. We've seen so many stories about that. There are other scenarios that seem kind of science fiction-y. You know, I mean, I, I've certainly read certain scenarios about people sort of beaming in and uh, changing the values on certain monitors, etc. And, you know, I, sometimes I think of them and I say, oh, well, if I'm the general counsel of a hospital or their, or their security CISO, am I really going to prioritize this? And I'm wondering, Andre, do you think that this, this intuition of mine, that there's sort of a spectrum of threats and that the real goal in the future for compliance and for best practices is going to be sort of ranking those threats along their probability and severity? Or do you think that really we, we've got to take it all on because, frankly, anything could happen? I agree with your assessment that some of these threats seem more sci-fi than reality. The good news is that the baselines of conduct that will help to mitigate and prevent the threats of today are also the same baselines of conduct that prepare an organization to deal with whatever sci-fi-like threats may come in the future. So I think one of the challenges that healthcare organizations in particular may face, and healthcare organizations do and should rightfully focus on patient care and providing services. But that means that since the focus of the organization is not tech first, there's a challenge in uh, getting the influx of baselines of security knowledge that perhaps the most sophisticated technology companies don't have because their products are technology themselves, whereas in healthcare, the products are healthy patients, uh, hopefully. So when we look at the totality of the kinds of challenges that healthcare organizations are facing now, there might be a uh, predisposition toward segmenting those challenges into particular risks, particular types of threats, because they seem to be the on-the-ground experiences, uh, and so um, there isn't necessarily an intuitive connection among them. Uh, for example, ransomware. We have seen entire healthcare systems shut down by ransomware, and that seems to be the uh, one of the dominant threats of the day that hospitals are particularly concerned with, as they should be. But ransomware isn't really a thing unto itself. It's merely a symptom of the general questions of security and information control and code quality that underpin and permeate all of the healthcare systems that have now computer code running so many key aspects of their operations. So how do we combat ransomware? Well, we take a step back and realize that it's simply one symptom of a security illness. And we treat the illness, not the symptom. Um, for example, another uh, problem that recently happened and was undoubtedly very concerning to hospitals around the country, there was an operation that was in process that was interrupted by a software update in one of the critical machines in the OR. And the patient survived, luckily, because uh, based on press accounts, the surgery was in a, uh, a moment, in a point in the surgery uh, the, where the, the doctors and the nurses could uh, maintain the current state of the patient without the assistance of the machine. But the fact that a machine was scheduled to slash chose to update itself at the point that a surgery was going on, that is an avoidable risk. And that's one of the questions of the way that we implement implement different technologies in context 
and anticipate the kinds of bugs, flaws, problems that will emerge not just because of the internet connectedness or because of the code itself, but the way that the machines interact in context with human beings, whether they're patients or services providers. So the way that any healthcare organization, from my perspective, uh, would hopefully approach these questions of information control, technology, security, it's just take a step back and first think about how technology is deployed through the organization and check whether the processes for assessing the quality and maintenance of those systems are in place, not only internally within your healthcare organization, but whether the providers that you're working with are robust and rigorous in the way that they have tested, maintained, and thought about how critical their products are to the human lives that are reliant on them in in many cases. Um, So the Wall Street Journal is going to have a series coming up on workplace tech, and I I contributed one of the pieces to that. Uh, And it's about selecting technologies based on security. And uh, that little piece will provide some concrete questions to ask uh, possible vendors of technologies. And in the healthcare context, it's particularly important to ask vendors questions about who has performed the penetration testing on the devices that they're trying to sell to a healthcare provider. How reliable and often are software updates? Um, do they provide security advisories? Uh, will they disclose what code libraries, if any, they've relied on in the build of the technology? Getting good information and doing good research on the history of security behaviors of systems providers is one of the key first steps in mitigating security risk throughout a, a healthcare organization. Um, and one of the ways that uh, some of the smartest hospital systems are doing this is that they're they're hiring a security consultant from one of the trusted security consultancies to be in the room when they're picking providers for critical systems. Uh, and the security consultant, um, and there are a handful of uh, security consultants who are, are true experts on healthcare tech and healthcare devices, and those individuals know exactly which questions to ask and will very quickly be able to give good feedback to the healthcare provider on whether the system should be implemented in the operations of the particular uh, hospital or, or healthcare entity. Um, these, these questions about the level of security in particular products and services, they are answerable questions before committing to deployment on a large scale um, of particular uh, systems or code in, inside an, a healthcare organization. And that's perhaps... Uh, the first critical step that every healthcare organization can take. And it prevents the experience of suddenly realizing that um, hundreds of your devices had a backdoor in a particular component, and now all of your ventilators are part of a botnet that is being used to attack websites. The, The way to prevent that is to try to have really good information on the front end and to be very selective about what technologies are brought into your organization. To an extent, that that sort of circles us back to the role of regulatory agencies. I mean, if you compare the HIPAA privacy rule and the HIPAA security rule, the security rule is far less prescriptive and I think therefore probably maps better to the kind of approach you're, you're recommending. So what else should regulators...
regulators be doing? I mean, putting out little nudges like the OCR's um, ransomware and HIPAA fact sheet saying, you know, that ransomware is a a breach and and should be reported as such. Where else do you think uh, government really can help here? Other than sort of, you know, monitoring compliance with non-prescriptive regs. So I think the steps that you referenced and uh, the FDA's willingness to engage with the security research community are very positive developments, uh, and and I commend the the agencies that are engaging with these issues. Something else that hasn't been done yet that certainly would go a very long way in helping patients, doctors, medical providers to get good information about code quality and to try to pick devices and technology products and services in a way that is mindful of security would be to create a more transparent database that's searchable for consumers and for medical professionals to be able to identify the companies with histories of making grievous security errors. So for example, there is a requirement to file data breach notifications, uh, both on the state level with under the state data breach notification statutes and uh, per the HIPAA security regs with the Secretary of HHS, creating a uh, format that is inclusive of the kinds of information that would allow not only a disclosure of the existence of the breach, but empower the private sector and public sector to track progress and the level of nuance and investigation of uh, the breach to highlight, again, which organizations are making basic mistakes in security and which organizations are experiencing a breach because despite using all of the -the state-of-the-art techniques, they were targeted by a highly sophisticated nation-state or third-party group. Both of those breaches are breaches, but one was entirely avoidable and due to a lack of care on the part of the entity. The second was unforeseeable based on the state of the art of science. That's a very different kind of conduct signaling. And to be able to have a database where the consumers and the medical professionals who rely on these technologies would be able to research the security history of various organizations to make an independent judgment about how seriously these organizations take security, that kind of a database would be very helpful. Similarly, when there have been adverse events relating to the malfunction of medical devices. Uh, the degree of detail in terms of code malfunction uh, leaves something to be desired if you look through those notifications of adverse events. There's no easy way to search through those notifications to identify which of the technology malfunctions are driven by deficits of security or other reasons. Uh, So some of this information empowerment could happen relatively straightforwardly through the creation of a public-facing database and working with the private sector in a cooperative way to create data breach 
notification forms and uh, adverse event forms that allow for more rigorous data disclosure in a way that can be tracked across time, both by professionals to be able to create a sense of improvement for particular companies to reward the ones that are investing in security, and by patients and medical providers to be able to make wiser choices about which companies they want to trust the lives of their patients. I think those are really good precepts. And now, perhaps going from the um, sublime, or at least uh, very well supported, to the wildly speculative, um, I wanted to just open up a conversation on blockchain and healthcare. This will be our last topic today, particularly because there seems to be a lot of enthusiasm now about blockchain technology in the health data, health privacy setting. And just to lay the groundwork here for this conversation, the bottom line for blockchain is that it's a peer-to-peer network where each computer in the network verifies and records every transaction on the network. And then transactions are only recorded on a common ledger once the network confirms the validity of the transaction uh, via uh, cryptographic or computer work or things like that in order to prevent third-party manipulation or other uh, manipulation of the record. And I definitely see the uh, potential of this in finance where apparently it's supposed to solve the double spending problem where you know there these public ledgers would be available for inspection for everybody uh, on this uh, social software. Um, I'm seeing some mention of it as a potential way to improve security uh, and improve perhaps even data liquidity in the healthcare context uh, in order to give people more of a sense of ownership over a record, um, either it being a public uh, permissionless blockchain or a private permissioned one. Um, and again, I, we can get into that distinction later on. Um, but just, uh, I've also heard a lot of skepticism about blockchain as a solution to any of the uh, big problems in healthcare data security. Uh, I just presented a paper at the BU uh, Computer Science Department, and you know a lot of the folks there were just concerned, what's the failure mode? Um, and failure modes have been demonstrated quite spectacularly in the DAO hack and other uh, uh, related uh, fiascos uh, in this uh, community. And so I'm just wondering, Andrew, what what is your read? I mean, are you more on the side of the uh, enthusiasts or more on the side of the the skeptics when it comes to blockchain and health data applications? I think I firmly fall on the side of the skeptics. Based on the lessons that we see emerging from the use of blockchains and ledgers in the cryptocurrency context, we are still very early in the technology itself. And there there have been numerous flaws and attempts at manipulating uh, data from the cryptocurrency context. In particular, there have been exchanges that have been Bitcoin exchanges that have been compromised, and uh, some of the structures of the various cryptocurrency currencies are making build choices that are proving controversial with members of the technology community. As with every technology, there's a, a there's a period of enthusiasm when it's first created. And we have early adopters who engage with it. And it's through the challenges faced by the early adopters that we recognize which technologies are more robust, more trustworthy, and which ones pose serious 
consumer protection concerns and are better suited for some tasks rather than others. We're still early in the research cycle on blockchain technologies. And when we're talking about information as sensitive as healthcare information, particularly when there are human lives hanging in the balance, I would definitely encourage us to be thoughtful and deliberate in the way that we choose to experiment with these new technologies that could result, if compromised, in devastating patient outcomes. Um, so I'm certainly on the, the side of the skeptics based on the dynamics that I'm seeing from the use of blockchain in cryptocurrency contexts. I know this won't be the, the last time that we discuss this, the three of us, or, or maybe even the three of us on the pod, but a little more context, perhaps. I mean, the uh, blockchain doesn't really solve the privacy issue or the confidentiality issue. Um, it is very much a security play. Um, and then on the other side of the ledger, pun intended, um, you have what's really at stake here. And, and that is maybe a way of driving forward interoperability. So um, John Halamka and colleagues have a, a really interesting new piece in the Harvard Business Review on the potential for blockchain to transform electronic health records. And doing a, a terrible uh, version or summary of that, what they're talking about here is that blockchain is a better techno technological solution to the interoperability issue than current sort of push or pull models. So I think there there are some stakes here that um, we, some values here that if we, if we could crack something like this would be very useful. There certainly are competing values. And I think that as we debate the various different models of technologies, we should also uh, think about whether we have all possible choices represented in the conversation. In particular, I've always found it interesting to look at international examples. And the model of healthcare data that we have employed generally in the US is different from the model of healthcare maintenance and transfer that has been employed in countries such as China. One way to maintain integrity of health records might be that individuals keep them in contained uh, environments, whether those are digital or uh, in China, they traditionally uh, used health books and the individual was responsible for that. And that way you minimize the risk of a remote third party attacker changing your medical records if the only or the dominant copy is in your physical possession. Uh, so that's not necessarily the best way to go about it. But the point is that there are models that are perhaps less high tech that may get the job done in a more efficient way. And we need to not only look across all of the most sophisticated technological models, but also at a range of degrees of technology sophistication within models. And certain pieces of certain models may be facilitated in their operability with uh, the help of a particular technology. But there may be components 
of a model of health record or uh, health services that do better in terms of protecting against the most negative patient outcomes by having less technology involved. Um, we can go back to where we started and think about uh, your paper, Nick, on the, the uh, IoT health things that we were talking about. What is uh, a concern of mine in the market that as we're talking about encouraging competition of different small technology providers, we're sometimes losing sense of the vertical competition of degrees of connectivity. Um, so I've, I've called this the better with bacon problem, that sometimes much like an overzealous chef that thinks that every single dish tastes better with a sprinkling of bacon, um, we add on technology uh, capabilities where they're not really necessary. So if you're a vegetarian diner, adding a sprinkling of bacon to your meal destroys the meal for you, regardless of what the chef thinks of it. And in that way, when we have a particular uh, device, sometimes, for example, Bluetooth, a notoriously vulnerable and manipulable technology capability, can be more of a detriment than a help in terms of um, the end game and the end goal of providing the highest quality patient services. So whether we're talking about blockchain or we're talking about uh, surgical robots or we're talking about internet connected ventilators or internet connected insulin pumps uh, or the FDA has just approved the first cyber pancreas, uh, as I call it, uh, 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 basically a robotic uh, pancreas replacement that has a high degree of, of technology capability and, and internet connectivity, uh, depending on uh, which model you use. So the question of how much connectivity we need and how much technology we need in order to most effectively, safely, uh, and efficiently get the bigger purpose accomplished of the highest quality of healthcare for patients. Uh, for me, that's the overarching question that should guide all of our conversations of the degree of technology we want present in a particular situation and which technologies we should select for the completion of the particular task at hand. And that was The Week in Health Law, clearly the bacon of health law podcasts. A huge thank you to Andrea for joining us. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at A-M-A-T-W-Y-S-H-Y-N. That's A-M-A-T-W-Y-S-H-Y-N. Thank you, Andrea. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. We post our show notes at twill.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, now that you're getting over your jet lag, I assume that you will be back twitting away. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Always quite twitty, in fact. <laughs> I'll be at Frank Pasquale. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. And don't forget to wave at your TV. Bye.